Bibles then to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, This is an important chapter. It is the theological center of the book. And we mentioned that, remember, 1 and 2 Samuel is actually one book. And this is ultimately the hub of the book. I'm looking forward to actually showing you not only is this really the theological center of the book, it's the theological center for all Scripture. Uh, As a passage you might know well if you've grown up in the pews and talking about a descendant of David who will be on the throne and all that is around that. We'll read that in just a minute. But what I'm looking forward to showing you in this lesson is that this text is not merely talking about Solomon and it's not merely talking about Christ. It has all kinds of implications and why it is so crucial to the New Testament as to how it relates to this text. So we'll spend our time then looking at that this evening. I'm going to call it this morning a lot though because this is my first time here and we'll be back tonight later, I'm sure. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived uh, in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. That'll be our text then 
this evening. I want you to notice how this begins. In the first three verses, you might have noted the repetition of calling David the king. The whole beginning point is the king is living in his house and the Lord had given him rest and it just keeps repeating that Nathan spoke to the king. And so you have this emphasis that what we have at this point is quite special as we've seen at the beginning of second Samuel that we have seen the Lord establish the rule of David his kingdom has been established the enemies are defeated Zion is established as the hub of the kingdom the Lord has come into Zion as witnessed with the Ark of the Covenant and David has humbled himself before the Lord and you are just seeing a picture of the kingdom is established The king is on the throne. The Lord is with the king and the Lord is with his people. And I want us to consider that you are seeing these promises being fulfilled to have in the very first verse, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Well, that's what what God had promised. God had promised through Moses that they would come unto the land. And God would establish this land and drive out the enemies and give this kingdom rest. We saw a picture of that in Joshua somewhat, but it didn't seem to be fulfilled. And yet now it looks like perhaps it's happening now as the surrounding enemies are being dealt with. And that the, we see then that the Lord had given him rest. And yet, David has an interesting concern. David's concern here in the first three verses is that here he is living in a permanent structure. This house of cedar. He's in, in a place of permanence and he sees that God is still dwelling in a tent. And I think there's something very special and precious about what you see in regards of the heart of David. And I think it's important to observe this because you might remember when we get out to the book of Haggai, after the temple is destroyed and the people come back on the land, God's complaint to the people was that all the people were living in their paneled houses while the Lord's house remained desolate. They didn't care. Notice David is looking at this and says, this doesn't seem right. How is it that the kingdom is established? God's given me rest. I'm in my cedar home. And yet God is living in this movable tent of curtains and and animal skins. That's all it is. So David says, what I'm going to do is I need to build a house. And Nathan says, well, God is with you. And we have seen all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 16 that, yes, God is with David. And Nathan says, God's with you. But God has a different message. And his message is is fascinating. We are going to see in God's message ultimately the heart and the humility of God. Because God begins in his response and he says in, 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 in this description, Tell my servant David, verse 5, don't pass over that too quickly. Go tell my servant David. God didn't say that to a lot of people. To say servant and put their name after it was awfully rare. (laughs) 
Abraham got that, my servant Abraham. Moses got that, where's my servant Moses? Caleb even gets that, this is my servant Caleb. This is the only time that that happens. And now, David. And we have talked about in our Sunday night series and looking at First and Second Samuel that we are looking for pictures of the anointed. We are looking for the Christ in these images, these foreshadowings that will happen. And it's certainly happening here because it might ring a bell when you come to those famous Isaiah prophecies. And it will say that my servant is going to do all of these things as the Lord's king, as the Lord's anointed. Isaiah 53, one of the most famous of that, and speaking of the suffering servant who is going to do these things on behalf and the will of God. Very important to see that God is putting David in this category. My servant, David. But then he asks a question in verse 5. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Now it's important to recognize God is not rejecting the concept of a house being built for him as was read and we will see a a little bit later. He's going to speak of who's going to build the house. The answer is not nobody's going to build me a house, but rather, David, you're not going to be the one. In fact, first Chronicles chapter 17 confirms that in the way it's worded there where God says it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. David, is it going to be you that's going to build me the house? No, it's not. But before he explains Why David is not going to be the one to build this house. Did you notice what God describes? It's absolutely amazing. In verse 6, God says, I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day. From the very moment that God had introduced himself to Israel, God says, I've never had a house nor have I ever cared about a house. And he goes on to say, in the days of the judges, the people who were to shepherd and be leaders over Israel, which of them did I ever say, why haven't you built me a house? They'd been in the land. Joshua conquered the land. They'd been sitting in the land of Israel for decades upon decades, upon decades with King Saul, and then hundreds of years with the judges. And God says, now where along this timeline did I ever say, what's the matter with you? Build me a house. (laughs) God says, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care about a physical structure. I don't care about a house. Who have I ever asked of those things? It is not of my concern, which is a useful aside to consider. In a religious world that seems to be very much concerned about physical structures, notice God says, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care about the building. You can make it all fancy and God doesn't care. You can make it expensive and God still doesn't care. He has no concern. Think about what this is in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is animal skins. And God says, did I ever say to upgrade me? (laughs) Would you please give me something a little nicer? God says, I don't care. You live in your cedar house. 
I'm good with this tent. In fact, did you catch the reason why God liked the tent? It's because God wanted to be with His people. Everywhere the people went, that's where God wanted to be. God's message in that is that I'm not just over here and you come to me, but I want to be with you. And I'm traveling with you everywhere you go. And you think about how that worked not only in the wilderness wanderings and how that worked as they come and conquer the land. It's worked in Shiloh as we've seen. And then God's moved around all over the place. And now we've come to Jerusalem that God is able to be where His people are. It would be fun. You could just do a whole sermon right there on that. God always comes to His people. He's showing that right here. God comes to them. I don't need a building. I don't need a structure. I don't need something special. I don't need any of those things. And I don't care about those things. In fact, God's message, when Solomon becomes the one to build this, the big message is God can't be constrained to one place anyway. What are you going to build that God's going to fit in? There's nothing that human hands can make that God is going to dwell in. He's too great for that. And that was part of Solomon's speech once the temple was completed. It's a beautiful picture of the heart of God. But notice he now wants to remind David about some things and explain what he's going to do. Verse 8, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, and made you a prince. As well, the great reversals. That's found in Isaiah, that Isaiah uses that in Isaiah 61. And that's an important picture that's given over. There's lots of times where there's this reminder of, think of the covenant that, that I made with David. David was a nobody. He's a shepherd. And yet he's brought in and raised up to be this king and to be this this, this prince over Israel. Look at what I have done for you. You'll notice he also says in verse 9, I'm going to make your name great, connecting him to Abraham. Remember, he said to Abraham and Abraham's promise to make you a great nation and make your name great. Now to David, we are connecting the promise of Abraham to the promise now being given to David. Abraham and, and David together, I'm going to make your name great, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And then in verse 10, I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men will no longer afflict them as formerly. Verse 11, and he says, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. So here is this promise. I'm going to plant my people and give them rest. Those are the prophets said that too. Amos says that. But please think about something. What did it say back in chapter 7 and verse 1? God told David, and David is recognizing that God had given him rest from all of his enemies. And yet at the same time, he tells David, I'm going to give my people rest. 
And I'm going to plant them where they'll never be disturbed. And so what you're seeing God say is, David, I know it looks like to you that this is kingdom fulfillment. David on the throne, surrounding enemies dealt with, rest on every side, God with his people, and yes, but no. There's a future picture. I'm going to plant Israel and the people are going to have rest and no longer be disturbed. Something else more is still coming. Yes, there was rest for David then, but that wasn't what God had in mind. Something bigger is under the surface. And you get the sense of that as you go through this prophecy. In fact, verse 11 is really the pivot point after saying, I'm going to give you rest from all of your enemies. You'll notice that he turns around and says to them, and I'm going to make you a house. Think about the reversal. David says, I have a house and God's in the tent. God says, do I really care about a house? I've never asked for a house. I'm not concerned about a house. It's not important to me, but I'm going to build you a house. And it's a word play because he's not going to build a building, but he's going to build a dynasty. His household, I'm going to build a dynasty out of you. I have purposes for you and notice it's not only for him but goes far beyond him because it says there in verse 12 when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom notice the picture is not David I'm going to work through you and David when you die that's the end no David when you die That's going to be the beginning. Bigger things are going to come from the offspring of David. And it's going to be David's dynasty, David's house, David's offspring that God is going to use to establish this kingdom. And so that's what he says in verse 12. I will establish his kingdom, verse 13, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me, verse 14. David, after you die, I'm going to build a house and build this kingdom for your offspring. It's going to be established forever. And we are going to have a very close relationship. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Notice what a close, intimate thing to say of the king. The king is going to be God's son. Now, that shouldn't be too disturbing. We know Israel was called God's son. And now he's saying that your offspring, the one that will come after you, he is going to be God's son. It's going to be so close, this relationship. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. And then it is so powerful what he says next in verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I put him away from before you. Notice God says, 
Sin's not going to thwart this dynasty. Sin is not going to thwart this promise. The dynasty is not going to be removed. Remember when Saul sinned, God comes in and says, that's it. I could have made your name great and it could have been descendants of you, but no, I'm going to give it to another, another of a different heart. And so David would be the one. And now the promise is, David, even though your offspring may sin, that's not nullifying the promise. It's not going to erase it. Which, if again we had another 30 minutes, this is an important concept right here. The theology that God is communicating here is that the promise is not going to depend upon the righteousness of people, but the righteousness of God. Now, all you Romans, that's Romans. The righteousness of God is being declared right here. The promise that God has made will not depend upon the faithfulness of people, but it will be about the faithfulness of God. God will maintain His faithful word. He will keep His promises. He will be righteous even though the offspring of David sin. This promise will not be erased. God will fulfill it with all certainty. And thus He concludes it in verse 16. Your house, this dynasty, your kingdom shall be made sure before Me forever and your throne shall be established forever. All right. So, so much to do in this text. This is such huge, the things that God is promising here. So stay with me as we start talking about the variety of areas that we must focus in on, on what God is showing here. As I mentioned at the beginning, this text is crucial to the New Testament. There are psalms that are built upon this prophecy. There are New Testament passages that are quoting this prophecy. Some of them we'll be able to look at this evening. But what I want you to hear is even in not direct quotes, the New Testament first is identifying Jesus as this offspring who is going to be the fulfillment of what is promised to David. You'll notice like in Luke chapter 1, You have the angel coming to Mary. And notice what the angel says in Luke 1 verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of of the Most High. Here is your Son of God terminology already being layered upon Him. And the Lord will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. The very first words of the New Testament about Jesus are, 2 Samuel 7 is coming to fruition. God's Son is coming who will have a kingdom that will last forever. And He will then have the very throne of David just as God had promised. It's why Matthew opens his Gospel in a very similar way. The genealogy of Jesus. Remember, Christ is... 
the anointed. That's what that word means. The genealogy of Jesus, the anointed, son of David, son of Abraham. Both promises, really the same promise, put into view. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Remember in our study of Hebrews, we saw this Hebrews 1 verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you or again, here in 2 Samuel 7, I will be a father to him, a father, and he shall be to me a son. The argument that the New Testament is consistently making is that we have a prophecy about Jesus and his eternal throne, who is the very son of God. These pictures are ultimately immense. Even Jesus walked around the earth talking this way. Think about a passage that we love so much where Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. That's what's being promised right here. When the offspring of David comes, he's going to establish his people and give them rest. Jesus walks around and says, right here, you come to me and I'm going to be the one to give you rest. You might even think about how Jesus often described how he didn't care about physical buildings. Not only has he described the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple like in Matthew 24 or the confusion of John 2 about which temple he was talking about and talking about his body. But remember even the Samaritan woman in John 4, the argument over where are we going to worship God? And ultimately the answer is it doesn't matter. We're going to worship him in spirit and truth. It's not that mountain or that one. Location, physical building, not relevant keen into this very thing that God said back here. Have I ever cared about a building? Have I ever cared about a location? I have not. And I've never asked for it. And yet in still thinking about that, I want us to consider how this promise is not simply to Christ, but it speaks ultimately to the whole lineage of David. First, obviously, Solomon is one of the primary pictures that Solomon will be the one who will build a house for the Lord. We'll see that when we get to first Kings. But think about how when Jesus arrives, he becomes this true house for the Lord. This is why Jesus would say, you know, no one can come to the father except through me. I'm that temple. I'm that place where you come to God. I'm the ultimate reality of what was being pictured back here of a house being built for the Lord. We see the reign of Solomon. It works out decently well for a time as the borders expand. But we see in Jesus' reign that it is eternal and his picture is destroying all of his enemies. The Apostle Paul, he must reign until all the enemies are put under his feet. It is a picture of this and not only that, of course. Yes, in a sense, Solomon would have God as his father and God would see Solomon as his son. But how amazing to see Jesus fulfill that in a staggering way to truly be the son of God. What is particularly important about the idea here is remember the emphasis is on even if David's offspring sin, the promise will not be revoked. God will be righteous. God will be faithful. So think about the power of the fact 
that when the true offspring of David comes, when the anointed arrives, he doesn't sin at all. Which highlights and proves all the more that everything that God had spoken and everything that Jesus would do had to be fulfilled. There's no place for nullifying the promise. No concept of breaking the covenant. He perfectly does the will of God. And please think about how all of David's offspring fail until you get to Jesus. All of them fail. All of them fall short. In fact, I want to show us some of those things in this lesson as we start talking about, so what does this mean for us? Why is this so important for us? We have to take a little bit of a journey to see that these promises that are being given to David is also being given to us. That we are also in view as this promise is being given to David, just as much as when you read about Abraham and the promise would be to Abraham and his offspring, the point is not only Isaac, nor is the point only Jesus. Who else are the offspring of Abraham? Us. And the same thing happens here. Yes, in the prophecy, David's offspring is Solomon. And yes, it is Jesus. But it talks to all of the offspring of David. In fact, it implies to the kings. Let me show you, again, sake of time, but let me just show you a couple of spots where you see this prophecy of 2 Samuel 7 being applied to the other kings of Israel. For example, this one I think is particularly fascinating. In 1 Kings 11, God is talking to Jeroboam. Now remember, Jeroboam, not a son of David. Rehoboam is. Rehoboam's in the south, southern nation after the kingdom divides. Jeroboam's in the north. But listen to what God said to him. God said to him, I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments as my servant as David, my servant did, I will be with you and build you a sure house. That's the same thing he said here. And establish your house. And here God says to Jeroboam, I'll establish your house too, as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Notice he parallels and says, I'll build your house as I built it for David. He says, You know that thing I told David? If you'd obey me, you too. Unfortunately, we know Jeroboam doesn't. Rehoboam's son, Abijah. Listen to the words that are said to Abijah. 18th year of King Jeroboam, the north son of Nebat. Abijah began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Absalom. And he walked in this, all the sins that his father did before him. Please catch this. Abijah walked in all of the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. So what's God going to do? He's not faithful. If you were a kid in Bible class, unhappy face, bad king. 
Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he'd commanded all the days of his life. That's this promise right here. Abijam is not walking in the ways of God. And God says, for the sake of David, I'll still establish Jerusalem for Abijam. Did Abijam deserve that? No. But God said, I keep my promise. I fulfill my words. I do as I say. And what I'm wanting you to see is the echoes and the imagery of this prophecy are being laid to the future kings that would follow. Because the point of of all of that was this huge idea that the hope of the people that would be the promise of God as given through David was not going to be erased by sin. That God was going to do this no matter what. That God would be righteous. That God would be faithful. And though they sin, all hope would not be lost. That is the huge takeaway of this prophecy. Though the offspring of David sin, that does not mean all hope is lost. Now I've cued you in on this idea as we come to the end. That we should see ourselves as also the offspring of David. To see this final few minutes, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And let me kind of blindside you by starting in the middle of the text. (laughs) And then I will back out and show you who he was talking about. But as you see this, let me lift it out of its context and notice what does this sound like? 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Where did that come from? There's only one place that we see that declaration made. 2 Samuel 7. Notice the Apostle Paul is quoting that right here and using it and saying, here's what God says. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Well, Who is the Apostle Paul talking to? Well, let's back up. You know, it's verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now follow. For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What I'm wanting you to see is Paul takes a variety of quotations from the Old Testament and throws them at us and says, 
Don't you know who you are? And don't be surprised at the context by which he uses this. Verse 16, we're the temple of the living God. Well, how would you prove that? I will be a father to them and they will be sons and daughters to me. That was what God said to David. In fact, actually, he said it to David's offspring. Those who would be a part of that lineage are enjoying this reality. Notice the picture that's given. Does God want to be with his people? Yes. Does he care about a physical structure? No. He's going to be with them. And thus we are the temple of the living God. And notice what is called for. Verse 17. So go out from them and their midst and be separate, says the Lord. But notice the big conclusion in chapter 7 and in verse 1. Horrific chapter break. Since we have what? These promises. What promises? Well, the promises that were given to Abraham, that were given to David, that were given to Israel. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The whole point the Apostle Paul wants you to grab is because we have these promises. When we understand who we are, we're supposed to live differently. And not only are we supposed to live differently, but that there is a hope that is tied to that. Because if we start saying, okay, who has lived perfectly and lived differently? All right, are we all in? No, we're definitely the, and when he sins, <laughs> we're right, yep, offspring of David. But what did God say? Your hope is not lost. God keeps his promises. But the righteousness of God continues. That God will be faithful even when we fail. And though we fail, he then turns around and says, Now cleanse yourself from that unrighteousness. Come out from among them and be separate and belong to me as the people of God. Second Samuel seven is pivotal to the whole of all that God was going to accomplish that. Yes, he's accomplishing it in seen in Solomon, even seen in the descendants of the kings of Solomon. Of how God continued the lineage, though bad king and bad king and bad king. Even making the offer to Jeroboam, not of the lineage, I'll establish you. And profoundly seen in Jesus, the ultimate reality of 2 Samuel 7. And we enjoy the benefits and enjoy the promises If we belong to Abraham, if we belong to David, if we belong to Christ, we enjoy all there is. Let me end with how the writer of Hebrews said it. Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house. 
if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. There's a vision of looking at us, how we would belong as the people of God, how we would enjoy this kingdom that Christ has established. And may we then live cleansing ourselves from every unclean thing and defilement when we understand who we are. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given amazing, immense, great and precious promises. Staggering pictures of what you would do for us in Christ. How can we not praise you? How can we not thank you? How can we not be eternally grateful? And Lord, we pray that your word would stir our hearts to a far fuller obedience of you. Lord, stir our hearts to holiness. Give us the dedication that we need to have to serve you. Thank you for keeping your promises, even though we fail as your children. Lord, we pray that we would always see ourselves as a temple to you, as reflections of you to the world, that we would be able to shine your glory and your light and your goodness and your amazing mercy and promises to all the world. Lord, help us to live in such a way and help us to say words in such a way that would show our full devotion to you. Thank you for giving us this kingdom that we have received that is unshakable. And Lord, thank you for your forgiving sins. We do not deserve to be in this kingdom. Lord, we confess it. We understand it. We know it. We should not be servants in this kingdom and we should not be children in this kingdom. Thank you for being faithful to us. And Lord, may we be more faithful to you in the days ahead. Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing now an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus and see the promises that God has made. You're enjoying looking through first and second Samuel and just seeing this vision of what God has in store for his people. We want you to be able to enjoy those promises as well, that you would turn away from your sins, to believe that Jesus is the anointed, the Christ, the Son of the living God who came to this world, who fulfilled all of those promises so that we could also enjoy the promises of God. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to start the relationship with Him. Won't you come and do that now while we stand, while we sing?